0: You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Please stand and open your Bible to Haggai chapter 2, which is found on page 4. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give, you pe- I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. This uh, whole Advent series, we've been going through, a, um, through a, one of my favorite Christmas hymns called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You're probably familiar with it. Um, and what we've been doing is going one verse of the song per week, kind of zeroing in on a phrase or a line that oftentimes we sing over, not realizing the meaning of it or the significance of it. And so, because this song contains a number of unfamiliar phrases, we want to know what it is we're singing about. We want to understand the words that we sing back to God, and specifically, where these lyrics come from in Scripture. We want our singing to be biblical. We're not here to invent ideas about God or worship God the way that we want to worship God. We are here to worship God the way He desires to be worshiped, which is in spirit and in truth. And so we've been tracing down these these lyrics through Scripture. And today, on the fourth week of Advent, we are looking at verse 4 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, verse 4 is kind of a unique verse of this song because depending on what arrangement you're listening to, sometimes verse 4 gets wrapped up into verse 3 and extended a really long verse. Sometimes verse 4 sort of has... It feels kind of like Legos, like a switch and swap sort of set that you can kind of take thing, words in and out, and, and so there's a lot of different variations of verse four, and this is due to the fact that this was one of the later additions to uh, the song that we sing around Christmas, but we have been singing the verse that we have been look, are going to be looking at today for a number of years here at Sacred City, so I thought, hey, let's go here, let's unpack what these words are that we're singing about, and so today, what we're going to do is start out with the very first line of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, verse four, that It says, Come desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Let let me just read you, we haven't sang this yet this morning, so let me just familiarize you with this. Come desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Now, this is one of those verses that I, I struggled with this week, trying to like pinpoint exactly where we're going to go, because it is a little bit of swap and switch verse. You can go a bunch of different routes with this. But what I want to land on today is this first line, come desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. And like last week, if you were here as we talked about the son of righteousness, this is a unique phrase from a sort of obscure Old Testament prophet. And this is probably a guy that maybe you didn't know exists, but it's a book in your Bible. It's a short book, only a couple chapters long, uh, the book of Haggai, who is a prophet. um, And and the line that we are looking at here comes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, which says this. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if we, we typically, I'm reading from an ESV Bible here, that's our, our go-to translation at Sacred City, but if we were to jump over to a, a King James Version Bible, this, this line, the treasure of nations, would actually read the desire of nations, um, the desires of nations. And so this is where we get the lyric, come desire of nations, come fix in us thy humble home. Now, as we unpack this line of of, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we also need to kind of unpack the context of the prophet Haggai. If you remember, I mean, this this is going about a year, I don't know, uh, 16, 18 months back, to when we were beginning our journey through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which have become a couple of my favorite books of the Bible. And the storyline of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God had stirred up in valiant men to return back to the city of Jerusalem uh, that, lie, that laid in ruins, to go back to the temple of God and to rebuild it from the rubble. Now, the reason that the whole city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the reason why the temple was lying in ruins, is because the people of God, the Israelites, instead of obeying God and keeping his commandments, what they did is they followed in the way of their first father, Adam. Adam. Right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you remember Adam and Eve. Um, the way of Adam was the way of rebellion. When God gave Adam and Eve the one simple command in the Garden of Eden, the place where God dwelt with his people, Adam and Eve quickly turned from that and insisted upon their own way. And in the same way, the Israelites followed in the steps of their first father, Adam, insisting on their own way. Instead of obeying God, instead of keeping his law, they broke God's commandments and began to bow to idols. And even though God's people had forsaken God, they turned their back on Him, they they decided, no longer will we worship. Our hearts are going to be fixed on the things that are perishable. Our hearts are fixed on creation rather than Creator. God, because of His faithfulness to Abraham and the promises that He made, called the people back to Himself. Though, Though God's people forsook Him, God did not forsake His people. And God calls them back to rebuild the ruins. Now, this is a huge undertaking. Uh, it, it's, it's an incredible feat. It's, it's almost unthinkable to go back. The idea of, of totally rebuilding a broken down city. Yet, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and a bunch of other valiant men and women go back and they start working. And it's all going pretty well. If you start reading through Ezra, Nehemiah, they lay the foundation of the temple. That's where they start. Um, that, that's really the epicenter of the universe is the temple of God, where God's presence would dwell in the holy of holies. And so they go back, and the very first thing they start to rebuild is the temple of God. And they lay the foundation, but very quickly, as they are, are building, they get distracted. And, and they get distracted in the sense that instead of putting themselves to the project of building God's home, which is his temple, they began to focus on their own homes. They, they, the thing that was most important for them to do in this rebuild project, instead, they put that on the back burner so they could go and fix up their own homes. This would be a lot like spending hundreds of dollars a month at, at Pottery Barn or Home Goods or something like that while forsaking to bring God his tithes and offerings, The people had forsook God's home. Instead, they focused on their own. And this is where the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene. These are men that God had appointed to go back to call God's people to the project that God put before them. To return to building the temple. Now in Haggai chapter 1, and again, it's a very short book. There's only a couple chapters here in Haggai. But Haggai, God sends him to confront the people in their sin. Their inconsistency that they're, they're so you know um, prone who were easily swayed from from first God now caring more about their own home, and so God confronts the Israelites in their sin and and we start to see the outworking of repentance in fact, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you start to see that these people actually respond to the conviction of God and begin rising up to rebuild once again but but here 's what Haggai does in chapter 2. He tells them that if you are to rebuild, if you are to go back to work like God's calling us to, here's what will take place. Here's the future that awaits you. And this is where we arrive at verses 6 through 9 in in Haggai chapter 2. It says, for thus says the Lord, and hopefully this context helps you understand a little bit better what's going on here in the prophet Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations or the desire of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. you see the Lord declaring a lot now there's a couple of things, a couple of big things that we need to unpack here with this prophecy um, and, and the, the two things are this: one, Haggai is prophesying that there will be a greater glory in this new temple now Solomon's temple was a, a glorious temple it, it was something that one. Its size, first of all, it was long-awaited. For a long time, God's people set up a tabernacle, this tent, that would pack it up, tear it down, set it up again, move from place to place throughout the wilderness. Now God actually has fixed for himself a permanent place. So, so here is this, this significance of historical time passing where they had a, a temporary place. Now they have a permanent physical dwelling place for God. But then the next thing that makes this glorious is the fact that it's massive, it's a large dwelling place. It's a large temple. And on top of that, it's filled with riches. All of, all of the treasures of the nation, all of the gold, all of the silver, all the beautiful uh, linens and, and pottery and lampstands and artistry were here at the temple uh, adorning God's dwelling place. And the thing that made the temple More glorious than anything else. The the crown jewel of Solomon's temple is the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that represented God's presence among his people, was there in the Holy of Holies. So when, when Haggai is saying, hey, there will be a greater glory than Solomon's temple, he's saying that there's something coming that will far pass, far exceed the glory of that first temple. And now the other thing that Haggai tells us is what actually precedes that glory, and that is the shaking of the heavens and earth. Now, this phrase, when, when God shakes the heavens and the earth, or when mountains tremble, the, this language, this sort of poetic um, expression is is meant to indicate a profound and significant event. It's much like the phrase that we have in our language uh, of like earth shattering news, earth shattering events. Something happened so significant that that it's like the foundations of the earth has shook. And we've seen in different places throughout history where God, in fact, has shaken the heavens and the earth. One of the places where, where something significant happens, where this happened, is, is in, um, in the book of Exodus, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. If you remember the scene, you have God, His presence coming down, um, lightning, thunder cracking, there's trumpet blasts. And nobody's blowing the trumpets, but there's blasts from heaven coming out of the skies. You have the, the heavens and the earth, and He's saying to His people, something significant is happening here. You need to pay attention. So we've seen places in the past where God has shaken the heavens and the earth, but there's other places in scripture where this phrase is used maybe more of a a prophetic language. Places like in, in the book of Isaiah or even the Psalms talks about God shaking the earth, shaking the heavens. And what this phrase typically signifies in that context is the pending judgment that God is a just and righteous God, that one day he will sit on his throne and everything will walk before his eyes, everything will come into his courtroom and he will rule a verdict. And to that which is wicked, it will be punished, to that which is good, it will be glorified. Now the prophet Haggai is saying that there is going to become another moment in time. He says, For um, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. There will be an act in history that is clear and a decisive act of God's judgment. Now, if we were to keep reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, and you probably recall, this prophecy that Haggai lays out for the people of God, it's fulfilled in part, but not fully. Yes, the temple does get rebuilt. Yes, the treasures from the nation, specifically the treasures of Babylon, comes back into the the house of God. We see the people trembling before God as the law of God is read. They feel conviction of sin, but the glory of Solomon's temple is not exceeded. It's not surpassed. In fact, I think it's in in Ezra chapter three, some of the old heads, the guys who have seen Solomon's temple before it got destroyed, are back there as the temple is being rebuilt. And while people are rejoicing, because it's good that the temple is being built up, what they're looking at is just a shadow of the glory of Solomon's temple. It's much smaller. And on top of the smallness of the temple, the, the lack of magnitude, The Ark of the Covenant is missing. The the thing that represented God's presence among his people. Now, God promises that his presence is there. All throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, he he assures them, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. But that thing, that special thing that God had given his people, that seems to be lost. And because of this, like the, the glory seems to be smaller, The presence is a little bit questionable of God. This place does not become the place of peace, which Haggai prophesies. In fact, it's that way in Jesus' time. It's it's very much, he calls it a den of robbers. Um, But we also see that today in current events. There's a lot of conflict going on in that part of the world. It's not a place of peace Now what this tells us is that Haggai's prophecy um, is is actually, while it does speak to the immediate context, it actually speaks beyond that as well. That there's a future orientation of Haggai's prophecy that a greater temple, a a temple that's not made of stone, not formed by human hands will come and, and this temple's glory will surpass any of the previous glory in any of the other temples. This will be a temple that cannot be destroyed Though the earth is shaken and the heavens are shaken, this temple will remain unshakable. Unlike the temple that got rebuilt in Nehemiah and Ezra's time and later um, King Herod was trying to fix it up too, but that temple fell to ruins in 70 AD. It's no longer there. And Jesus prophesies of himself as he's walking by that temple one day, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now that temple still lies in ruins. A temple made of of stone and mortar. He was talking about himself. The true temple, the, the dwelling place of God, the true, better, more glorious temple that Haggai speaks of is none other than Jesus Christ the incarnate Son of God who comes to earth, who dwells among us, who tabernacles among God's people. And what we're told in the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that he is full of glory. Look at this. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now here, here's the markers of his glory full of grace and truth. See, the glory of the temple, the glory of Jesus is marked by the fullness of grace and truth. Now this boomerangs us back to this this line, come desire of nations, come. What makes Jesus so desirable? It's that he's full of grace and truth. See, there is a universal desire among the nations, of all, of all peoples, regardless of class, of culture, what continent you live on. There is a shared longing that humans have. A longing for something greater than your basic needs like food and water, as, as intrinsic as those are. A longing for something greater than gold or silver or even all of the world's riches, and that universal human desire is a desire for grace and truth. In your heart of hearts, the thing that you want most is truth and grace. All people everywhere want this. We, we want to possess the truth, the objective reality. There's a reason why, um, like when, when you're encountering the truth, we talk about to be enlightened. Right, The truth is, is this lamp that lights up before you. In fact, in, in the Proverbs we're told, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The, the light comes, the truth comes, and it brightens up. It helps us to see the true reality, the real reality. Because nobody likes to stumble around in the dark. Nobody likes to live by lies. Because what you find is that if you're living in the dark, if you're, if you're getting jerked around by lies, you're being deceived. I mean, this is true from from things as benign as, as getting your car service of going to, to a mechanic and you want to hear the truth. What's, what's true about my car? I don't want this, I don't want this like over-dramatic response that I've got to do a thousand things to my car now. I want the truth. To your politicians all the way up to your religious worldview, from things of small significance all the way to the greatest things. What we want is truth. We wanna know what is fixed, what is reliable, what is knowable. And Jesus enters the world at Christmas with the life mission of witnessing, of testifying to the truth. Now, the thing about the truth is you can't handle the truth. <laughs> the, the truth is, is scary in some ways, because as we explore the truth, there are oftentimes things we discover about ourselves that are unbecoming. There are things that we learn about God that maybe, because of our status, are hard to swallow, But Jesus, as he stands before Pilate in John 18, 37, he says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And he says in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. That that if you have the courage to know, know, to learn the truth, it will actually set you free. Now what this tells us, and think back to that, you're getting jerked around, that's a tyranny of lies. It's a tyranny of darkness. And oftentimes, here's the thing that, that makes it so hard to distinguish between what's true and what's false, what, what's absolute and what's subjective, is that oftentimes, lies taste good initially. They taste good on the way down. There's something appealing or desirous about those lies, but eventually, eventually lies leave you with a bitter tummy. It's just as we saw in Genesis chapter three when when Adam and Eve, being deceived, being lied to by the serpent, they, they took the fruit that God had forbade them to eat and they took it and they ate it. And in that one act of deception, all of the brokenness, all of the heartache, all of the tyranny, all of the, the misery of life here under the sun is downstream of that one act of deception. Now, this, this one act from Adam and Eve, it seems, it seems pretty insignificant to eat a fruit, but it's not because God gave them one command. This was the beginning of this trajectory of the plight of man. See, this eating of the fruit led Adam and Eve to exile. They they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, out of the place of peace and harmony where the presence of God was. That was the first temple. And now they're left outside of Eden. And this pattern that was begun with them carries on even today in our society now. Because at the heart of that very first lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve was that we can be like God. Now, what does he mean by that? What's he trying to get at? I think by the way things unfold, we can see that the serpent is trying to tell Adam and Eve that you can make your own rules. You can decide for yourself what is right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's virtuous and a vice. That you can define your own reality. You can tailor the truth to your own liking. Now, when, when we bite in on that lie, which is still very prevalent today, I, I would say that lie is still the main lie that, that is affecting our society today. When we bite in on that lie, it leads to a, deni- a denial of what is actually true primarily what is actually true about us, that we have no business deciding ourselves what is right and wrong. Because God is absolute, because God is the one who is holy and righteous above the heavens and the earth. No one is like him. He is the one who gets to define what's good, true, and beautiful. And that's one of the things that is plaguing the church today in in the guise of progressive Christianity, of of trying to downplay the fact that we are not like God, that that we are in fact sinners, that there's brokenness, there's corruption in our own hearts, and what, what other religions and progressive Christianity tries to deny and downplay is the reality of sin. But Jesus tells us And we see through the apostles that that is our original state, that we are much like our first father, Adam, that instead of obeying God, we decide to go on our own way. We are prone to wander, as we sang this morning. Not only are we born into sin, but we have perpetuated sin as rebels, breaking God's commandments, and following in the steps of Adam. This is words here in the, the verse four of Hark the Herald and Sing, where it says, in us the serpent's head, Adam's likeness now a face. There's a sense that we are much like Adam, who was our covenant head, and he led us into rebellion. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, this is the twofold truth uh, of, of that Jesus brings to the world. One, that God is holy, that there is no one like God. And two, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all are sinners, that we are, are caked in the messiness of sin. Now, her, hearing the truth about ourselves, uh, of reckoning with this reality that, that sin is real, sin is a threat to your life, you are really left with one of two options here. You either, one, live in denial about this truth, you, you, you follow along with what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter one, where the unrighteous suppress the truth. They've heard the truth, they know the truth, but they don't like the truth, so they shove it down. I don't want to deal with the truth. I want to keep living in the dark. I want to deny the truth that God is holy and that I am a sinner. So you can go that route. But eventually, your sin will catch up with you. As as God tells Cain, shortly after Eden, your sin, it's crouching. It's like a lion waiting for you. It's waiting to catch you and devour you. Or the other option, having heard the truth from Jesus, from God's word, you long to encounter God's redeeming mercy, to find grace in the face of Jesus Christ. Now this grace, we're told Jesus comes, not just full of truth, if Jesus came full of truth, that would, be, that would still not be very good news for us. I mean, at least we'd get to see things as they truly are, but, but there's no mercy there. But Jesus came not just with fullness of truth, but fullness of, of grace. And the grace that Jesus gives is not merited, it's not earned, we don't deserve it. It's not based on your own works, but the grace that's given based on Jesus' work. A grace that frees us from sin, that, that lifts us from captivity of darkness and brings us deep into the light. And we're told that, that Christ, for, for He has a sufficient grace. That that for every ounce of your darkness, every ounce of your sin, He has an overflowing cup of grace of mercy for you. And this is what he says as he carries on, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 15, he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass which Adam committed. For if many died through one man's trespass, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the only man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, for For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, now so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now, the law came, to, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteous, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see here this, this transfer of representation. If, if before we were under the covenant, headship of Adam, the father who brought us into sin. Now, through the grace of God, we are transferred under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the covenant head who comes full of grace and truth with mercy to redeem us, to save us, to justify us. This is why, one of the many, many reasons, I mean, we could, we could unpack this for a couple extra hours here today. This is one of the reasons why, why Wesley calls Jesus the desire of nations. He's, he's full of truth and mercy. This is the only place you can find true truth and real mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is the only source of those things, no other religion, no other, no other act of trying to pull yourself together and make yourself accept, you can't find it anywhere else. Only in Christ. This is why all of the nations flock to Jesus. This is why the command, the great commission to go make disciples of all nations is because Jesus has what all the nations want truth and grace which lead to our righteousness in Christ, our justification before God, the judge, our father. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. Once we were outsiders, orphans of wrath. Now we're adopted into God's family, brought near to our father. We were once hopeless, having nothing to hang our hat on, but now we have hope. Now in Christ, we have life, abundant life, eternal life, a life of peace. Now, there's many different ways. One of the things that makes this Haggai prophecy so complicated is because there's several different points where you can, like, touch on and say, okay, that was, that was partial fulfillment. There's something going on there. Heavens and earth shaking, right? And just Haggai prophesied heaven and earth would shake once more at one time at the death of Christ, where he was on the cross, where it looked like the temple was being destroyed, do you remember what happened? The skies darkened. The earth trembled like an earthquake. The, the curtain to the holy of holies was torn into. What was going on there? What, what happened in that moment? That, that was a definitive moment of God's judgment where the sins of humanity, of, of anybody who puts their faith on Christ where their sins were dealt with once and for all. A definitive moment of judgment. But here's the interesting thing that happened. Just as Jesus is the temple, the true temple, the better temple, we're also told in scripture that the church, the church becomes the temple. Now this is something that's got me scratching my head a lot this week, because I've never really dove into this so so much, but this is the kicker of this. That Jesus being the cornerstone of our faith is taking these living stones, which are members of the body, of joining them together and Christ himself dwelling in this Christian, if you, your faith is in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. The presence of God has moved in. This is why we sing, fix in us thy humble home. The Spirit of God now dwells within the redeemed that we become his humble home. Now, that, that's not even further. Past Jesus' death, past his resurrection, to his second return. Because in Revelation chapter six, we're told that as the seven seals of judgment, the seven bowls of wrath are being poured out, that there is once again a shaking of the heavens and the earth. And those who are in Christ, we will not be shaken. Though, though, though the earth trembles and the sky gives way, we are fixed in the safety of Christ. Because our sin has already been dealt with at the cross. And in him, we stand clothed in righteousness. And as, as we see this reality, we, we, we jump ahead. Let me, let me take you to Revelation chapter seven here. Because you have, first in chapter 6, the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And then something happens. That the the riches of the nations, the, the desire of the nations, or the nations and their wealth, come into the kingdom. He says this, after this I looked and behold, this is Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Why? Why were we unscathed in the shaking of the heavens and the earth? It's because we were clothed in the righteousness, the white robes of Christ. With palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Now now listen close here. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, this this is what I believe is the ultimate fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy, that the greater glory where God and his people join together in the new heavens and the new earth. Where God takes care of, even, even the, the most um, basic desires of hunger and thirst are met in God. The lamb will look after us, that, that we'll be sheltered by his presence. This is what the hymn says to be reinstated in his love. to to be in the care of God, to have every desire, every longing met. And when we're in that place, we get to enjoy peaceful eternity with God, free from sin and full of life. Jesus is the desire of nations. Jesus desires for himself a people that he will bring into the kingdom of heaven that, that their glory will be their faith in Christ. It says in 1 in Peter, their faith be more precious than gold. This is what will adorn the new heavens and new earth. But our nations. Let me ask you, do you desire him? Are your longings for this Christ swelling? every day is your longing not in a way where you have contempt for your current life as it is but in a way where you see the glory of the coming kingdom where your heart is moving toward that. that that you become more heavenly minded day by day do you desire the desire of nations may the lord increase our desire for himself today and all the days of our life let us pray Father, I thank you for your word, that that as we stand here this morning, we we know that many men and women have gone before us that have have taken you at your word, that they have trusted in your promises, they have seen your faithfulness as you deliver and hold up the promises that you make. And, And just as we have... We have ample reason to believe, Lord, that what you said you have, will do, you, you are in the process of bringing it about. We have your son who has already entered in this world, that we celebrate his birth, his arrival. We have the spirit, the guarantee, the deposit of our redemption. And Lord, we know that you are a faithful God, faithful to your promises. And so we look forward to the day when all the sickness, all the, all the brokenness, all of the curse, of this world, all, all even the fact that, that the tarnished image of our first father, Adam, that, that is, is being refined, that is being displaced so the image of Christ would shine in its place. And Lord, we know that we, we become what we behold. We want to become like you, and so help us to behold you. Help us to desire you this day and every day of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.